0: Thanks for that. Thanks, so uh, thanks to uh, thanks to uh, for putting this on. Thanks everyone for coming out. And what in the world happened to the weather? Last two weeks traveling across the country has been beautiful. It's like 20 degrees yesterday afternoon in Calgary, and then yikes. Um, I'm hoping this isn't going to continue. I'm hoping we I'm get to the coast before it gets cold. But uh, this is. Uh, uh, part of a 20-plus uh, city tour from my latest book, Canada and Africa, 300 Years of Aid and, of Aid and Exploitation, which is obviously, as the title uh, implies, uh, is a historical account of Canada's role uh, in terms of impoverishing uh, the African continent. But because we are in the midst of an election campaign, I think it's appropriate to start off with our good friend Stephen, and his policy towards uh, towards Africa. And I think that uh, Stephen Harper's foreign policy has been clearly destructive towards uh, most Africans. A uh, important component of that is they have made, the Conservatives have made, Canadian policy in the African continent basically synonymous with the interests of Canadian mining companies. And S- Harper himself has lobbied on behalf of controversial Canadian mining companies, when, uh, can, can people in the back hear me? Should I speak louder? Or? Um, Harper himself, when, when uh, uh, traveling on diplomatic missions has lobbied on behalf of Canadian mining companies, controversial Canadian mining companies, uh, uh, 2007 in, in, uh, in Tanzania, after Barrick Gold had announced that they were going to lay off a thousand striking miners uh, Harper met with Barrick officials and uh, took up Barrick's cause. Uh, more recently in Senegal and uh, a few years ago. So Canadian diplomats across the continent spend much of their time uh, being working on behalf of Canadian mining interests. Also Canadian uh, aid, tens of millions of dollars of Canadian aid money across the continent has gone into supporting mining interests. In 2014, the Conservatives began something called the EXCEED initiative, uh, Extractives Cooperation for Enhanced Economic Development, which the government described as, quote, a new funding mechanism to expand Canada's involvement in areas of high development impact in the extractive sector in Africa. When the Canadian aid money goes into EXCEED, what they're talking about, the objective of of this initiative, uh, they talk about high development impact, What that really means is shareholders in Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Calgary uh, 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 receiving the benefits of of the natural resources in different uh, African countries. And uh, part of the aid money being channeled into supporting the mining industry is, uh, is initiatives such as one begun between Canadian Aid Policy uh, NGO and mining company in Burkina Faso. Basically in 2011, the government put up 5.5 million bucks for Plan Canada to work with a Canadian mining company operating in Burkina Faso that was uh, uh, controversial um, uh, mining operations and the objective really of the Canadian aid project was to pacify local opposition uh, to the mine. So the Conservatives are backing the mining industry aggressively through at the aid level, also at the level of, of signing foreign investment promotion and protection agreements, which the Harper government has signed more than 10 FIPAs with African countries or governments. And a foreign investment promotion protection agreement, what it does is it provides Canadian companies with the ability to sue African governments in international tribunal for lost profits. Lost profits because of a, gun, a government expropriating a mining concession and even potentially because the government uh, uh, bringing about uh, domestic procurement rules which would mandate uh, mining companies to buy products uh, internally to you know cr- create jobs, uh, local jobs, create local uh, uh, business. So the Harper government has been signing these FIPAs uh, with uh, uh, many different African countries are negotiating or signing them. Uh, they've announced a number of the FIPAs at, at uh, the Prospectors Development Association of Canada meeting in Toronto. So it's, uh, it, they make it very clear that these FIPAs are about advancing the interests of mining companies, or protecting the interests of mining companies, is how they would frame it. And um, the FIPAs are locked in effectively for 16 years. So even if it's an elected government in Cameroon that signs the accord, they mock in future governments for more than a decade and a half, right, which is a, uh, undermines uh, electoral democracy. Now, in a more egregious example of that, the Harper government signed a FIFA with the government in Burkina Faso in the spring. The government in Burkina Faso was a caretaker government. Because in October of last year uh, there was a popular revolt against the 27-year regime of Blaise Campate, which was an operated incredibly pro-mining, incredibly incredibly pro-Canadian mining uh, uh, policy. And so there's a caretaker government, no pretense of electoral legitimacy, that's supposed to be preparing the way for elections, which were which were planned for in the coming days. Now look like they're going to be postponed because of. Uh, uh, political, it was a coup and then a counter-coup um, uh, or a, that, well, a coup that was overturned uh, in uh, about a week ago. Uh, so, sign signed the FIPA with a government with no pretense of electoral legis- legitimacy that will lock in all future governments uh, to to the FIPA. And I should point out that in the case of Burkina Faso, Canadian companies dominate the mining sector and beyond that, they actually have Canadian mining companies are the biggest foreign investors uh, across the board within the Burkina Faso uh, uh, economy. So the Arbor government pursued a very aggressive pro-mining policy across the continent. Uh, they've done so, as I alluded to, <coughs> uh, even when companies are engaged in abuses. And in the book I detail a uh, 12 or 13,000 word chapter that goes into numerous different examples of Canadian mining companies abuses across the continent, often working very closely with government officials, sometimes receiving aid money, uh, etc. So the Harbour government backs Canadian mine companies even when there's communities that have been displaced by a Canadian mine, when there's significant ecological damage, and in some instances, a number of instances, when numerous people have been killed uh, around by mining officials or around mines. And the worst example of that is probably a Barrick Gold mine in Tanzania, where there's been towards two dozen people killed in the past decade by Barrick Barrick Gold uh, security officials or police paid for uh, by uh, by Barrick Gold. But beyond the specific abuses of Canadian mining companies across the continent, there's a bigger question of whether the whole model of of foreign uh, uh, corporations uh, uh foreign mining companies dominating the economics is beneficial to to most africans right the profits generally leave the country much of the uh, the uh, management positions engineering positions are often uh, are people from outside the uh, outside the continent and uh, and uh, in fact i think it is a good case to be made that the, the model of economic development Based around foreign companies extracting natural resources uh, is really the the uh, the uh, 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 strengthening of uh, or the uh, uh, the uh, deepening of the model of, of uh, de- development that brought about by colonialism, whereby African countries were sources of, of uh, raw natural resources, value-added production uh, taking place. Uh, elsewhere. So the Harper government backs the mining industry uh, despite abuses, despite uh, it being uh, a, an industry certainly that benefits some Africans. There are There's a rise of an African billionaire class, there are Africans benefiting, but the majority of the population uh, is not uh, from uh, a mining-oriented economic model. Shifting gears, in 2011 the Harper government waged war on Libya, uh, Canadian general led the NATO, f- uh, NATO forces. Uh, there were seven Canadian fighter jets that participated, a couple Canadian naval vessels, and it was in flagrant disregard of international law, violation of this international law. Uh, the, a number of media reports discussed how there were Canadian troops on the ground in Libya. UN resolution 1970. 1973 Security Council resolutions explicitly precluded foreign forces from Libyan territory. There was a Waterloo-based company that provided drones to the rebels, uh, and a Canadian military man that trained the rebels in use of the drone, and uh, a former Canadian military man. And the UN resolution called for an arms embargo of Libya. Also, uh, uh, Montreal-based Garter World, private security company, biggest private, privately held private security company in the world. Garter World operating on the ground, supporting the rebels. UN resolution called for no uh, foreign mercenaries. So Canada's role in Libya, and a whole, different le- a whole number of levels, was in quite explicit violation of international law. And for that alone, Stephen Harper should really be brought... Uh, uh, brought to trial. The consequences of Canada's role in Libya have been significant. The country totally destabilized now, uh, the rise of of ISIS or Islamic Islamic State, civil war going on in the country, thousands of people were killed in the direct violence of the NATO uh, campaign, but there's been thousands, probably tens of thousands more that have died in its sort of instability and the destabilization that came with the NATO uh, uh, operation, <coughs> the and and in fact uh, a, a, a significant part of the sort of refugee crisis that we've heard a lot about in recent weeks, uh, Libya has really been a uh, the destabilization of Libya has has paved the way for uh, part of that uh, part of the uh, refugee crisis. Libya has been staging. Staging a uh, point for uh, a number of refugees uh, into Europe. The context of uh, the war on Libya has, and its role, its ties to the African continent and military policy in the African continent are also important. So, Gaddafi was resisting, whatever you want to say about all kinds of elements of Gaddafi's uh, policy, about his repression and what not, he was resisting the U.S.-Africa command's uh, installation on the continent. U.S. African <laughs> Command being the American's military, uh, regional command, uh, uh, which has previously been based in uh, Germany with CENTCOM, uh, Americans have been trying to push that onto the continent. And so enough people have suggested that that's one of the reasons for desire, desire to get rid of, uh, uh get rid of, uh, Gaddafi. But for, from a Canadian perspective, and Canada has been going along with the U.S. African Command, which I detail in the book, uh, a bit, and I'll detail a bit here. Part of the, 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 uh, the context of Canada's military footprint in the continent, Canada has been supporting African Union forces uh, in a number of different areas. Obviously in Somalia and in Sudan, but also Canada has been spending <coughs> tens of millions of dollars in terms of building up the African Union African standby force which is basically, which has uh, a central uh, a force and then regional uh, components across the continent. And uh, the the African uh, standby force, or Canada's goal in building up the African standby force, is done under the rhetoric of African solutions to African problems. That's how Canadian officials describe supporting African Union forces. But in the case of Libya, there was quite clear African solution to African problem. So the African Union put forward a number of different peace proposals to end the conflict in Libya. To the point where heads of state from different African governments traveled to Libya in the midst of the conflict to try to negotiate a solution, to bring about a solution. But in that instance, when the African solution to an African problem wasn't in alignment with Ottawa, Washington, London's uh, geostrategic objectives—they were completely ignored, ignored to the point where they're not even reported on in our media. Um, So it makes you wonder about what the real objective of Canada's role in building up African Union standby force, if it—if it isn't really about African solutions, African problems, or maybe it's better—it's only African solutions, African problems when those solutions serve our interests. And so uh, people have suggested, and I think correctly, that Washington's primary objective in supporting African Union forces is to have uh, African Union regional forces that are dependent financially and logistically on Washington, Ottawa, London, to a slightly lesser extent, of course, um, as a way to better influence African politics and African uh, military uh, policy. Probably Harper's worst crime against Africans, uh, certainly it will be, I think, be seen like that uh, historically going forward, is his complete indifference to the impact of climate change. Uh, climate change has significant, uh, already seeing significant impacts on the continent. So, in the case of the famine in Somalia in 2011 that led to uh, tens of thousands of people dying. Uh, uh, scientists at the British Meteorological, uh, uh, the British Met, uh, tied it directly to climate change. The Climate Vulnerability Monitor refers to 400,000 people dying because of climate uh, change, climate disturbances already, globally. Uh, but a significant proportion of those people are, are on African continent. And that's the most vulnerable People, of course, right. The Harper government clearly doesn't care. Has pulled Canada out of the Kyoto Protocol, undermined international climate negotiation meetings, uh, lobbied on behalf of heavy carbon-emitting tar sands uh, interests in the U.S. in Europe, and uh, and doesn't care about the also the fundamental injustice of of the climate uh, question. So most African countries emit less than 100 per capita emissions uh, than Canadians and Canada. So, despite feeling the brunt of the impact of climate disturbances, obviously those impacts are increasingly being felt here as well, but, but uh, at a much greater degree on the African continent, uh, despite the, uh, feeling the brunt of those uh, uh, impacts of climate change, there's very little African governments African political systems can do about it because their their responsibility for carbon emissions is so low. Uh, uh, So, uh, relatively speaking, at least. And uh, the Harper government's indifference to the impact of of climate change uh, uh, on the continent reached a kind of uh, symbolic high point in 2013 when they pulled Canada out of uh, uh, um, the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification in Countries Seriously Affected by Drought and or Desertification, particularly in Africa. That's the actual name of the UN, uh, the UN body. Um, they might need a PR firm to help them out with that. <laughs> but, uh, but so this is basically a body that uh, gathers research on the impact of, of climate change. And uh, and the Harper government saved Canada about 150 thousand dollars a year by pulling out of the body, inconsequential amount in the federal government budget, of course, but it was highly symbolic, I think, of their complete indifference to the impact of climate change, and Canada's the only country not part of the of the UN convention. And uh, and I think it's motivated by a mixture of of hostility towards science around climate change, and uh, ambivalence towards uh, the United Nations. So, Harper's policy across the African continent, I think, has been quite destructive. Harper is, uh, is uh, uh, you know, needs to be defeated on October 19th, as I've said elsewhere, I, I, you know, he's, he's vile um, uh, for what he's done in Libya. He should be uh, he should be brought to international uh, tribunal. Maybe at another time in history, uh, the people would have dealt with him differently. Um, but uh, unfortunately, uh, it won't be enough. Defeating Harper on October 19th is not enough in terms of uh, fundamentally shifting Canada's uh, uh, role uh, in the impoverishment of the African continent. And in the book, I I trace uh, Canada's role. Uh, going back to before, even uh, before Confederation. So Canada contributed in a small way to the transatlantic slave trade. The transatlantic slave trade, most of the focus of the transatlantic slave trade that we hear about is the impact on those who were enslaved, those who were stolen. But there was also a significant impact on African societies, hundreds of years of warfare that was, that was uh, uh, instigated in large part because of the uh, the uh, the slave uh, economy. And of course, the impact of the the Transatlantic slave trade uh, in Africa was part of what uh, weakened African societies paving the way to to European uh, uh, colonial rule in the late 1800s. So there were Africans enslaved in Canada. It was legal for more than 200 years. There were Canadians, in quotations, uh, that participated in Helping the British put down revolts uh, in the in the Caribbean, particularly the uh, slave revolts, the, the famous Haitian Revolution of 1791. There were Canadians that, that participated in trying to suppress that. The, the naval base in Halifax, British naval base there, was used was uh, to uh, to suppress the uh, slave revolts in the Caribbean at that time. Most importantly, there was significant wealth generated in the Atlantic provinces in providing food, specifically cod, to uh, feed the slave plantations. So the Caribbean slave plantation owners didn't want to devote any of their lands to producing food for for the slaves. They wanted it all for cash crops, but they needed a source of high-protein, salty, cheap food. That food uh, a, lot, a lot of that food came from Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, and it began a significant trade relationship with between Halifax and, uh, and the Caribbean. And uh, there were uh, there were some Africans who went north, who some slaves who were, went north in that trade relationship. But it, there was a, it became a, a, a significant trade relationship. And and the significant wealth that was generated in the book, I trace some of that wealth to the, the founding uh, of the CIBC uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, Scotia Bank. So, the, some of the, the capitalists who founded those banks uh, made their money in that uh, in that trade with the with the uh, slave plantations in the Caribbean. This book, more than my previous books is, I came to the conclusion at the end of doing it, is really a book about Canadian imperialism. Um, And uh, I'm comfortable saying that because Canada and Canadians participated at all levels of the imperial process in the African continent in the late 1800s onwards. So there were Canadians that conquered, helped conquer different parts of the continent, there were canadians who uh, participated in the political administration of british colonies there was there was an economic uh, component and there were canadians who participated in undermining uh, african cultural ways uh, through the missionaries at all levels of the of the uh, 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 imperial colonial project in 1885 385 canadians went to, uh, to uh, deploy to, to uh, Sudan, Khartoum, to help the British maintain control of Khartoum in current day Sudan. Uh, Khartoum was under, uh, under siege, by, or the British were under siege there by uh, indigenous forces. There were thousands of Canadians who participated in the Boer War of 1898 and 1902. Um, the Boer War, it's a little bit complicated how it fits into the scramble for Africa but but it it does, it certainly contributed to British power in uh, in, uh, southern Africa. And there were dozens, probably hundreds, of Canadians that participated in conquering different parts of the continent, primarily with the British, British military forces, uh, but also in one instance, at least, with uh, the Belgian uh, king. Most of these Canadians in the late 1800s who went and helped conquer different parts of the African continent, they were trained at the Royal Military College of Canada Kingston, Ontario, which was set up in 1876 to train, in large part to train uh, Canadians to be officers with the British military. And uh, uh, one of the uh, preeminent Canadians who who, who, uh, who participated with the British in conquering different parts in the late 1800s or during the scramble for Africa, was a man by the name of William Heineker, trained at the the Royal Military College. Between 1897 and 1906, he participated in 12 different expeditions, rose to become a full general within the British military, and was part of the West African uh, uh, Frontier Force. In his own book and books about him, he repeatedly refers to destroying towns, employing scorched earth policies. And in his 1906 book called Bush Warfare, which would become a training manual for uh, British military officers about to go to Africa, in Bush Warfare, Willie Heinecker says, quote, The great thing is to impress savages with the fact that they are the weaker, and enforce the will of the white men and accomplish the object for which the expedition is organized. No leniency or half measures are of any use until the savage has felt the power of force. Leniency is treated as a sign of weakness. Right, so this is an indication of the sort of brutality, the racism that a uh, Canadian uh, military officer was, uh, was uh, believing and promoting. Another prominent Canadian in uh, different expeditions in Africa was a man by the name William Stairs from uh, Halifax, from a very prominent family in Halifax, and Stairs was part of two major expeditions on the continent. The first one was uh, the uh, Emin Pasha Relief expedition, which became quite uh, infamous in, uh, in, in Britain at the time, and it was the first expedition of Europeans to cross the continent uh, uh, through, the, through the middle of the continent, through current-day uh, Congo. And it took nearly, uh, nearly three years. All kinds of horrible uh, brutality that uh, uh, was part of the expedition. And, uh, and Stairs, who was trained at the Royal Military College, one of the first Canadians uh, trained at the Royal Military College, he uh, held a diary for his, his expedition... And in that diary, he talks about ransacking the place, he talks about uh, taking uh, carriers, which are effectively slaves, just basically enslaving people for short periods of time. And in one passage, he says, quote, It was most interesting lying in the bush and watching the natives quietly at their day's work. Some women were pounding the bark of trees preparatory to making the coarse native cloth used all along this part of the river. Others were making banana flour by pounding up dried bananas. Men we could see building huts and engaged in other such work. Boys and girls running about, singing, crying, others playing on a small instrument common all over Africa, a series of wooden strips bent over a bridge and twanged with a thumb and forefinger. All was as it was every day, until our discharge of bullets, when the usual uproar of screaming of women took place. So this is a sign of just the complete inhumanity of William Stairs, who, upon his return in, uh, to Halifax, was feted by the mayor of Halifax, with the uh, lieutenant uh, governor-general, uh, on hand. They play, here comes the conquering hero. Today, there are at least two plaques at the Royal Military College named after William Stairs. There's a plaque at a cathedral in Kingston and there's an island in Parry Sound, uh, Ontario, uh, named after William Stairs. So he is still someone uh, glorified uh, in Canadian uh, political uh, life. And Stairs, I should have uh, mentioned Previously, Stairs, actually, in the second expedition that Stairs was part of, he, 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 had, he led uh, an expedition of, of, uh, of uh, towards 2,000 men. They conquered, uh, he conquered the Katanga region of the Congo on behalf of King Leopold II. Uh, the Katanga region, it was actually it's, uh, about 150,000 square kilometers added to King Leopold's uh, so-called Congo Free State. And I'm sure some people have read uh, Adam Hochschild's book about uh, King Leopold's ghosts. Uh, King Leopold would implement a, a brutal system of rubber extraction that led to uh, literally millions of people uh, uh, dying or being, being killed. And uh, stairs uh, led the expedition to conquer uh, the, uh, the uh, Katanga region for King Leopold. There were Canadians who helped administer British colonies rising to become governors of Northern Nigeria, Kenya, Ghana. Uh, One individual trained at the Royal Military College, uh, Percy Gerard, was governor of both uh, Kenya and Northern Nigeria. Uh, There were hundreds of Canadians in lesser uh, British colonial administration positions across the continent. In 1923, the uh, colonial office in London with Ottawa and, and uh, McGill, Queen's and the University of Toronto began something called the Dominion Selection Scheme, which recruited recent graduates of Canadian universities to join British colonial service, primarily in Africa. And the, uh, the individual responsible for the initiative at the colonial office in London referred to it as, quote, taking Canada into partnership in the white man's burden." There were about 2,500 Canadian missionaries proselytizing across the continent at the end of the colonial period. first Canadian missionary dates to 1860. They played a role in undermining uh, African familial customs, cultural ways, economic ways. Uh, they also played a role in encouraging imperialist sentiment within, within this country and um, to... Pay for their operations. They uh, needed to uh, describe horrors that they had seen uh, on the continent. So even in some instances where early k missionaries were very much dependent on locals to, for their survival, but even when they were actually being, you know, helped by by uh, different uh, different African uh, uh, nations, they would denigrate um, them uh, back here. Uh, because that was part of how they fundraised. That's how they got people to motivate people to give money. So they would, Canadian missionaries repeatedly referred to the darkness, the heathenism, the nakedness they uh, uh, claimed to have seen uh, on the continent. And one, of the, and one of the preeminent ideologues of Canadian missionaries, and, and uh, specifically of, of the Sudan Interior Mission, which was set up in, in Toronto in 1893, and would become the largest inter, interdenominational Protestant mission across the continent. The Sudan Interior Mission had 1,300 missionaries by the end of the colonial period, not all of whom were Canadian, but it was still based in, in, in Canada. And the Sudan Interior Mission uh, uh, was uh, promoted all kinds of different uh, anti-African uh, kind of ideas, and the leading... Uh, ideologue, or a leading ideologue with the Sudan, Sudan Interior Mission, uh, uh, Trontonian Douglas C. Percy, who published a number of novels uh, uh, denigrating uh, Nigerians, and a number of pamphlets, uh, non-fiction books. In a supposed non-fiction book in 1948, Douglas C. Percy said, quote, The people of Africa have associations with demonic powers. Behind the face of Africa... Looms a dark, evil intelligence—the shadow of Satan, the great enemy of God and man. So this is some of the kind of rhetoric that missionaries were pumping into uh, into Canadian society, which very much encouraged imperialist sentiment and uh, and was good for uh, good for fundraising. Canadian missionaries, as I mentioned, worked to undermine to civilize uh, uh, Africans, which meant, in large part, undermining uh, uh, cultural ways. They often did so hand-in-hand <coughs> hand with colonial administrators. In the book I talk about, I, 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 I show these examples of, of Canadian missionaries working with Canadian colonial administrators uh, uh, to do so, in the case of Uganda. And to get a sense of just how much uh, so that the missionaries worked with the imperial colonial project, and I've listed before, a number of examples of Canadian missionaries doing so, in the book, but one, I think, particularly extreme example is a Canadian Jesuit in Southern Africa in 1890, Alphonse Daniel, who headed up a small mission post. He actually provided health services to Cecil Rhodes, the uh, famous British imperialist, Cecil Rhodes's forces which were, were sent an expedition from South Africa into current-day Zimbabwe to conquer uh, the Nedebri uh, people. And the uh, Canadian Jesuit did so in exchange for a large plot of land in current-day Harare, and because, uh, I think something like 20,000 20, uh, uh, hectares, I believe, and also because the Nedebne people had resisted the Jes- Jesuits' incursions into, into uh, uh, in their missionary uh, incursions, so they were prepared to support the military conquering to spread the word of uh, of, uh, God. At the level of economics there was uh, the customs office set up a trade return category for quote British possessions in Africa way back in 1893. Canada had its first trade representative in South Africa in 1902 Trade representative who was responsible for uh, a number of British colonies in uh, the southern, southern and southeastern uh, 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 part of the continent. Alcan, uh, company, a Montreal based company, uh, begins prospecting in uh, Guinea in 1916, sets up a mine in 1928. batter Shoes, a uh, Toronto based company begins operations in the 1930s on the continent, by the end of the colonial period it dominates the uh, shoe-selling and, and shoe-making in uh, more than a dozen different uh, colonies. So there was an economic uh, component, not, not, not as significant as Canada's uh, economic uh, dominance in the Caribbean, same banks have dominated the Caribbean going back more than a century, Uh, um, not maybe as significant as as Canada's role economically in much of Latin America, historically, but nonetheless there was a a Canadian economic ties to European colonialism, and those ties grew as the colonial period moved on. Diplomatically, Ottawa basically endorsed European colonial rule in Africa. To the extent that, between 1950 and 1958, Canada delivered $1.53 billion, worth about $8 billion in today's money, in NATO Mutual Assistance Plan weaponry to European NATO powers, primarily Britain, France, Portugal, Congo. What were Britain, France, Portugal, Congo doing in the 1950s in Africa? Anyone? What were Britain, France, Belgium doing in the Congo, or in in Africa in the 1950s, when they were receiving all this Canadian weaponry? Well, in the the case of the the Brits in Kenya, they were repressing the Mau Mau independence revolt, which led to tens of thousands, ten minimum, but probably tens of thousands of people being killed. Canadian weaponry was was employed there. In the case of the French in Algeria, it was even more, probably into the hundreds, plus thousand people killed. When there were hundreds of thousands of French troops in Algeria, Canada was giving, not selling, giving the French ammunition, knowing full well where that ammunition was being put to use. Similarly, the uh, Belgians in the Congo, not quite as aggressive, and the Portuguese in uh, in Angola, Mozambique, and Guinea-Bissau, and the Canadian weaponry in that, in that instance, actually, developed a bit more of a controversy in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, they were using it to put down the independence struggles there. So Canada's complicity with European colonial rule in Africa is abundantly clear. Has all kinds of different layers to it. It's abundantly clear for anyone who bothers to take a look into it. But find me an academic in this country who points it out. I, I well, I, I mean, maybe, maybe in some in some writing, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come across any of. Uh, I only found one instance where an academic uh, mentioned it explicitly in a PhD thesis um, uh, that mentioned Canada's uh, uh, explicitly mentioned Canada's uh, uh, complicity with European colonial rule, and in. uh many instances, even when it's sort of effectively being detailed, it's not mentioned. Since one article I'm referring to in specific, the author traces Canada's diplomatic and trade representative ties on the continent, right, just so mentions that Canada began a trade representative in, in South Africa in 1902 and then in the Congo in 48. all these things that are effectively uh, detailing a complicity with European colonial rule, but never mentions it explicitly despite it being, a, I, I would argue, a politically salient point, but never mentions it explicitly. So you say, why? Why wouldn't you mention that at the, arguably the most politically salient point? Why wouldn't you mention that explicitly? Well, most people who bother to think about these things now view European colonial rule as, a, as wrong. There was, you know, African countries, Africans deserved independence and it was, European colonial rule was, was, was wrong. So to, pe- to point out that Canada is complicit with that is obviously, uh, suggests Ottawa being involved in something that's not, uh, not correct. And it would challenge this incredible mythology that we have in this country of benevolent Canadian foreign policy, Canada. Yes, Stephen Harper has done some things that are bad. Uh, maybe something some people just say it doesn't it wrong? But fundamentally, Canadian foreign policy has been about uh, whatever you whatever word you want to use, honest broker, peacekeeper, uh, all these different terms that across span the political spectrum of benevolent Canadian foreign policy. So. And and liberal scholarship has has, has very much uh, uh, spurred this mythology and has has very much uh, uh, advanced this this mythology. The idea is that Lester Pearson was a a benevolent uh, foreign policy maker. Uh, I have a book called Lester Pearson's Peacekeeping, The Truth May Hurt, uh, which uh, for anyone who believes in that myth the truth may hurt, um, and, and that spans that spans very far on the spectrum. People like Linda McQuay, right, consciously mythologizes, consciously not 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 uh, you know we she cites books that talk about Lester Pearson's role in the war in Vietnam and completely ignores the fundamental points of what what the what the book um, actually says of what he did. Consciously mythologizes. Anyways, a little a little off off uh, off track with that, but but. So, so Canada was complicit with European colonial rule and liberal scholarship and academia has very much um, uh, suppressed or or ignored uh, that complicity. Ottawa's reaction to independence was to basically try to continue the same types of policies. So when Ghana wins independence in 57, Ottawa offers aid if Ghana joins the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth at that time was very much London dominated. It was the club of former, or of European settler states, of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, apartheid South Africa. Recently, the recently decolonized South Asian states had just joined, but the power was very much in the hands of, uh, of London at that time. And so basically, Canadian aid was designed to keep newly independent African countries within the Western fold. They don't break too far. Not uh, don't pursue a radical decolonization. And a big chunk, and an initial in, uh, aid initiative was actually called the Special Commonwealth Africa Assist- Assistance Plan. And a big chunk of Canada's initial aid in Africa went to military training, to training the newly independent countries' and militaries. And in two instances, it was a highly politicized military training. In the case of Tanzania and Ghana. It was very much about making sure those countries, and those countries' military specifically, didn't go uh, too far down an independent path, didn't go towards China, didn't go towards the Soviet Union. And in the case of Ghana, it was a Canadian-trained military that would overthrow Ghana's independence leader, Kwame Nkrumah in 1966. Uh, we have the files from the uh, Canadian High Commissioner, at the time, who boasted, privately, in communications to Ottawa, that Canada's military training in Ghana had maintained that country's military, uh, in his words, as the most Western-oriented institution within the country. After Kwame Nkrumah was overthrown, Kwame Nkrumah today is somebody who is uh, viewed quite positively, he was dubbed the Man of the Millennium by BBC listeners in Africa, a few years ago, uh, it's a, a bit more than a few years ago now, um, when Mika Jean went to, went to Ghana, she laid a, 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 a wreath at, on his, t- his tombstone. So somebody today that is, is you know, seen quite positively. But in, back in 1966, when Kwame Kuma was overthrown, Canada's High Commissioner said, quote, a wonderful thing has happened for the West in Ghana, and Canada has played a worthy part. Ediamine, people familiar with Idi Amin? Everyone familiar with edamine? I thought everyone would usually <laughs> I, <or laughs> I thought everyone would usually be familiar, familiar with Idi Amin. Um, I didn't know that had anybody who actually met the guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, so basically Idi Amin is now, you know, there was the last king of Scotland seen as this, uh, killed many people crazy on and on and on. What's not stated in all of this is that Canada s- supported Idi Amin's coup against Milton Obote. That was a coup that was very much backed by London, Washington, Israel uh, to, a, to a lesser extent. And uh, Idi Amin ha- was, uh, was a, a British military uh, man in, in Kenya during the Mau Mau Revolt, so he participated in suppressing the Mau Mau Revolt. and. Falkenbridge was not happy with Milton Obote, who was uh, Uganda's independence leader. Ma- Falkenbridge had a, a major mine, in uh, mine in western Uganda, but then in the 1950s during the colonial period, Falkenbridge wasn't happy. Canadian company wasn't happy with uh, with uh, Milton Obote for increasing copper tax exports, tax exports on copper. Yeah, his Shoes wasn't happy with some mild nationalist policies that uh, Milton and Bote was pursuing. And it appears that Ottawa supported the coup against uh, uh, Milton and Bote, supported Idi Amin's coup. So in the House of Commons, Trudeau was asked on a number of occasions whether, uh, to basically his opinion or government's opinion on Idi Amin's coup, refused to condemn the coup. And I cite a, f- a few different files in the book about suggesting Canada's complicity with the coup. The strongest example is from a, a book by an Alberta bureaucrat who was about to go on a seated internship to Uganda. And uh, he uh, asked the Canadian International Development Agency official in Uganda uh, their opinion, this is right at the time of the coup, their opinion about Idi Amin's coup. And the seated official, she said, quote, the new administration favors democracy and Western civilization's democracy, while the former one favored the communists. So Idi Amin favored Western civilization's democracy, which might tell us more about Western civilization's democracy than she was intending to to state. So I don't want to exaggerate the point, but Canada seems to have supported uh, uh, the coup against... uh, uh, Milton Abote by Idi Amin, with all the consequences that has had on Ugandan political economic uh, life. More significantly, Canada's most significant role in a post-independence uh, coup against a progressive African leader was in the case of Canada's role in the undermining and assassination of Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. Petrus Lumumba now is widely seen quite positively, a revered figure, many pan-African socialistic kind of milieu. you. Uh, he was elected uh, at, at, at independence and he ended up only having a few months in office. Basically the Belgians, which had uh, uh, operated a particularly brutal a form of colonialism in the Congo, upon independence, they were willing to basically uh, give political independence, but they wanted to maintain economic control, particularly the vast mineral resources in the east of the Congo. And when Lumumba pursued a more radical form of decolonization, that basically said, no, we we want to really take control of our country, politically, economically, militarily, uh, uh, Belgium supported the secessionist movement in the east of the country. Lumumba turned to the UN for a force to protect the, the territorial integrity of the newly independent country, to protect his government. Washington viewed the UN force from a very different perspective. Very much used the UN force to undermine Lumumba. Canada provided 1,900 troops for that UN mission, Canadian troops dominated in the uh, intelligence gathering positions within the UN force, and they very much worked to undermine Patrice Lumumba. Privately, uh, John Diefenbaker, Prime Minister at the time, referred to Lumumba as a, quote, major threat to Western interests. Canada supported Dag Hammarskjöld, the head of the UN's anti-Lumumba position. Canada, the money, the aid money put into the country, very much, uh, or went to supporting the UN mission through the UN mission as a way to support the UN mission and to undermine Lumumba. And uh, a Canadian colonel, who was uh, the head Canadian military man uh, when Lumumba was assassinated, uh, Jean Barthum, he would boast decades later that he had told Joseph Mobutu, who would become the dictator for more than three decades, who at that point was the head of the military. He told Joseph Mbutu where the Mumba was when he had escaped house arrest, and uh, and told Mbutu to, to dispatch a flight with soldiers to, to capture the There was a Canadian on the on the flight. They captured the a few weeks later. The was dead, and then his body uh, dissolved in acid. So Canada actually played a fairly significant role in the uh, undermining and assassination of uh, of uh, Patrice uh, Lumumba. More recent years, Canada's imperialistic policy on the continent has continued uh, with regards to structural adjustment. Canada spent tens, probably over a hundred million dollars in money supporting the World Bank, through the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund in supporting structural adjustment programs across the continent. Structural adjustment programs are basically policies to reform countries' economies in the interests of corporations, in the interests of foreign investors. Usually it means privatizing state-owned companies, liberalizing rules on uh, uh, foreign investment, uh, reducing uh, labor uh, standards, etc. Alongside the money through the IMF, the World Bank, the Canadian International Development Agency spent tens of millions of dollars in direct support for structural adjustment, Usually what that meant is providing money to governments that followed, were, followed the economic reforms that the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were, were promoting or pushing. But in some instances, it also, there was more of a stick, that was more of a carrot, there was also more of a stick element to it. And so when, when African governments didn't, didn't follow orders from the World Bank and IMF, Canada withdrew its aid money in the case of uh, uh, Zambia, Tanzania, that's been uh, well documented in the late 1980s. And in the case of uh, Zambia, Canada's support for the structural adjustment program there, structural adjustment programs there, in the late 1980s, early 90s, led to a Canadian former Vice President of the Bank of Canada uh, being appointed the Governor of the Bank of Zambia. So the person in charge of monetary policy in the country, uh, 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 partially responsible for implementing structural adjustment, was, a, was a, uh, a former vice president of the Bank of Canada. And a, an African media outlet at the time referred to it as, quote, a white Canadian who came to de the bank post under controversial circumstances. <coughs> That was in 1990. Continuing on today, the the Croatian government supported the new partnership for Africa's development, which is uh, sort of a uh, structural adjustment light policy. Uh, In 2002, put $500 million into supporting that, and the Canadian government continues to promote these types of policies, continues to exchange aid for these types of policies uh, across the continent. Primary beneficiaries of the structural adjustment period in Africa have been Canadian mining companies. Canadian mining investment on the continent has gone from less than $250 million in 1989 to more than, 300, uh, to more than $31 billion in 2011. A 150-fold increase, directly tied to the privatization of state-owned mining companies. The reduction in royalty rates that came with Uh, uh, structural adjustment, the loosening of restrictions on on foreign investors that came with structural adjustment. So, Canadian companies have been primary beneficiaries, mining companies. And today, on the African continent, Canada is a mining superpower. Outside of South Africa, in in pretty much all of the uh, uh, major uh, uh, mining uh, countries, Canadian companies dominate. And often dominate overwhelmingly. And Canadian aid money, Canadian companies have been involved in uh, rewriting countries' mining codes. Generally, th- when those mining codes are rewritten, they tend to be better for foreign investors. Um, and so people often talk about how China is buying up Africa's resources. But on a per capita basis, Canada is buying up China, uh, Africa's resources at an infinitely greater rate than China or Canadian companies are. So moving towards a conclusion, I hope that I have uh, laid out a fairly grim case of Canadian, about Canadian foreign policy in Africa. I hope no one was assuming that it was going to get a more grim story. And if you were, I could maybe keep going into some more details. Um, so the question becomes, what do we do? Right? How, how, do we, how do we get out of this, this, this grim tale, if you like, uh, to something, something better? A uh, first step in the process, I think, is defeating Stephen Harper on October 19th. It's an important that... Uh, so whatever we can do in that in that struggle, or in that battle, I think it's it should be done. But unfortunately, of course, it didn't just start with Stephen, and it's not going to end with the uh, Conservatives being uh, ousted from office. In a... Uh, a book about Canada's role in the Congo between 1960 and 1964 and Canada's role in the assassination of Lumumba. An academic at uh, uh, Laurier University in, in uh, Waterloo, uh, 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 Kevin Spooner, he, uh, he discusses an internal government file that listed Canadian decision makers' top ten concerns in coming up with policy Uh, in the Congo uh, during the U.N. mission that would ultimately lead to Lumumba's assassination. According to Spooner, not one of the ten concerns listed by Canadian decision-makers was Canadian public opinion. So, they basically, they had all kinds of different variables that were influencing policy. Canadian public opinion was not part now, the assassination of Lumumba and Canadian policy in that is, is now widely viewed as one of the preeminent post-independence imperial crimes, but Canadian opinion were not uh, part of the discussion. To me that's a sign of just a fundamentally undemocratic nature of Canadian foreign policy. It's a very small few who dominate the discussion. Now since the time of the assassination of Lumumba, and Canada's role in the, in the Congo at the time. There have been struggles or partner movements that have challenged Canadian policy on the continent. So there was, a, there was a movement that challenged Canada's complicity with Portuguese rule in Angola, Mozambique and Guinea-Bissau in the late 1960s and early 1970s. There was a movement that challenged that. There was a bigger movement that challenged Canada's complicity with apartheid South Africa in the 1970s and 1980s. And despite what the newspapers told you after Nelson Mandela died, Canada did not lead a charge against apartheid South Africa. African independent governments were calling for isolation of apartheid South Africa going back to the 1950s. Mulroney only comes along in the mid well, mid to late 1980s to have, bring about sanctions, and those were even mild uh, 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 sanctions.
1: There were Canadians
0: campaigning for decades... Standing outside of the liquor, board, uh, liquor stores, calling on people not to buy South African wines in the 1970s, uh, throughout the 1980s. So that, that that process democratized Canadian foreign policy a bit. In more recent years, there has been movements that have challenged uh, Canadian mining abuses in Africa. There have been there have been diaspora communities that have challenged Canada's complicity or. or, or uh, 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 acquiescence of support for the uh, American-Ethiopian invasion of Somalia in 2006. There have been diaspora communities that have challenged Canadian companies like Talisman's role in Sudan. There's been, uh, there's been uh, uh, diaspora communities that have challenged um, Canada's support for Paul Kagame in Rwanda. So there has been a sort of democratizing effect of these movements on Canadian uh, policy towards Africa. We are a less racist society. We are a more internationalist society. We have greater access to, to international media than we did in the, in the 1960s, um, but still, foreign policy is fundamentally driven by a select, a small few. And as I was, I was saying to, we talking about with Tony uh, before the Monk debates on to foreign policy. The recent Monk debates on foreign policy is is a is a stark example of that, where. Peter Monk, the head of, or founder, no longer head, the founder of the largest uh, uh, Canadian mining company, probably, as if there's one individual who would be viewed as the most uh, the, the most abuses on his hand on the African continent or globally, uh, one single Canadian capitalist with the most abuses, it would be Peter Monk. And yet, our foreign policy debate in this country was... Uh, uh, overseen by the monk debates, which is fu- uh, named after him, financed by him, um, and of course, mine policy was not part of, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the monk debates. So, Canadian, Canadian foreign policy in Africa, and more generally, is still in the hands of a very small few. The vast majority of the population is shut up in the discussion, either because they're, they're, they're ignorant, because they're indifferent, because they're confused by dominant ideology, a whole bunch of different reasons. So, to me, I think the fundamental battle, long-term battle here, it's not a short-term, long-term battle, is building that consciousness ar- around Canadian policy towards Africa and 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 more generally, and building political organizations that will take up the fight to uh, challenge Ottawa's role uh, in uh, in the impoverishment of the African continent and challenge Ottawa's role. Uh, globally, uh, so I think that's the that's the political fight that's ahead, and um, uh, I, I think I'll uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, thank you very much.